Welcome. You're listening to The Hill by Thieves Theatre. I'm Gabrielle. I'm Nick, and we're the thieves. Well, not exactly thieves. <laughs> no. Um, but <laughs> beginning in 1981, we called ourselves Thieves Theatre. But we didn't just do theatre. We did conceptual guerrilla art projects, or what we called paratheatrical work. Our goal was to disrupt and alter the social and political status quo. Oh, very high-minded. Um, but what that really means is that we like putting sticks in anthills and watching the ants scurry and readjust to their new reality, right? Their new status quo. Their new status quo. Right. So in this podcast, we'll be highlighting uh, the various projects that best exemplify this. Yeah, we named ourselves Thieves Theater in honor of uh, the French playwright Jean Genet. He was a novelist, political activist, and playwright. We found him as a playwright. And the quote from his autofictional work, his novel, uh, Thieves' Journal, is the primary guiding principle that we used. And that quote goes, If I examine my work, I now perceive in it patiently pursued a will to rehabilitate persons, objects, and feelings reputedly vile. I was involved in the rehabilitation of the ignoble. The quote of his I really like is, all revolutions begin with theft. <laughs> exactly. And that, well, actually, isn't it every revolution begins with theft? Because I'm saying that. <laughs> You're saying that because I've tried to find that quote again, and I haven't been able <laughs> right, to find it. I, I Google it for years, and the only thing that comes up is our quote, our quoting him. You know? Right. Which brings me to the next thing, which is, that is also the quote on our website, which is thievestheater.org. That's theater with an R-E dot org. And if you go there, there's tons more information, including about the Hill, about our entire history. Yeah, and the, the first project we want to uh, tell you about in the coming episodes is called The Hill, which is also the name of Gabrielle's journal. Right, exactly. It was uh, published by... Autonomy Media, and it's available at our website, thievestheater.org, but you can also get it on Amazon and at Printed Matter. Directly from Autonomy Media, Amazon, but you can't get it at a bookstore near you. Not not (laughs) yet, anyway, right? Not yet. We also called the project the Living Museum of the Nomad Monad. Right, and that is a concept that Nick came up with brilliantly many years ago, well, many moons uh, ago. Uh, not so brilliant, but it is a concrete poem, Nomad Monad. Um, uh, put it on a paper, the two words next to each other, and maybe you'll discover something I discovered um, how many years ago, many years ago. Right. But but that's also what we called the hill, uh, another name. The Living Museum of the, the Nomad. The Living Museum of the Nomad Monad. Right. right it's on time. that postcard. Yes, exactly. Yeah, we made a postcard at some point, too, that showed the teepee and named it. Um, right. So. Right. So let's, 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 let's clarify all this. Exactly. It's the work, the hill, involved erecting a teepee in Manhattan's then longest existing shantytown at the height of New York City's homelessness crisis, and then living in it for almost three years. 
Another thing that we called it was Thieves Theater's Last Stand. Right? Well, that was when we uh, put a play on inside it. We, yeah, we, we named it a lot of different things. It was very difficult to get a handle on what we were doing at any one point and give it a name. So it was constantly involving. We had so many projects that we did with the residents that we were calling different names. Right, yeah, but, but, but basically it being referred to as The Hill, I think, is, is yeah. generally it. Well, why don't you uh, read from the book, and okay. then we'll, um, you know, you can find, you know, uh, sort of give an overview of what we were doing. Oh, okay, right, right. So I, I really should start with a back cover then, because that does give uh, a very concise overview, okay? So in the middle of the night on Thanksgiving 1990, the same weekend that Dances with Wolves opened, Life Partners Gabrielle and Nick erected a 25-foot-tall replica of a Lakota teepee in New York City's then longest-existing shantytown known as The Hill, located at the foot of the Manhattan Bridge at Canal and Christie Streets. The teepee was dedicated that December on the centenary of the Wounded Knee Massacre in remembrance of the lives lost in 1890 and in recognition of the sovereignty and dignity of all the most disenfranchised and forgotten members of our society a century later. Gabrielle and Nick thought that if the teepee stood for even one day, it would be a success, drawing the eye of over 80,000 motorists that crossed the bridge per Well, day. I thought it was only going to be up one day, or we thought, because the next morning after it was put up, I climbed up on the roof of that commercial building over there and took a photograph. Because we thought sure that the authorities were going to come and say, what the actual is this? Yeah, right. <laughs> and take it down, right? right? So we were fully prepared. You know, taken down. Have right. it taken down, right? right. Drawing the eye of over 80,000 motorists that crossed the bridge per day, compelling them to engage directly with how our society treats its most down and out. But the powers that be let it stand, and Gabrielle and Nick ended up being welcomed and living on the hill for over two and a half years, getting to know and love their neighbors in all their complexity, cooking with them, performing art with them, quarreling and making up, and watching many of them die until August 17th, 1993, when the city finally bulldozed the hill, teepee and all. Gabrielle kept this journal that details their day-to-day -day lives as they navigate drug dealers, one of New York City's largest ever police corruption scandals, city politics in the era of David Dinkins, elected to solve the homeless problem, and journalists looking for a quick story. It traces the steps of how a shantytown went from the anonymity of waist-high huts hidden in the weeds to a tour bus and celebrity stop, from addicts just getting by to a drug supermarket, from a close-knit encampment to a crime scene that entangles everyone from pushers to users to the cops to the artists themselves until one day the unspeakable happens. I mean, it happened day by day, but the context of all that, the political, the, everything that was going on at the time was um, hard to navigate. Uh, I mean, the scandals that were going on, the police were somewhat out of control. Um, you know, yeah, well, the police corruption scandal in itself is at least one episode. <laughs> right, right, especially as it was going in, what, the 75th precinct. Yes. And then it, how it 
came over to the fifth precinct the where we were. Fifth right. precinct uh, in Chinatown is where we were. That right. was all caught up in it too. And right. that really also played itself out on a regular basis with the cops right. and our relationship to them on the Hill. It was interesting because we were talking to the uh, borough president, uh, Ruth Messenger's office. Right, right. I mean, um, once, um, once they got my number, um, her assistant, um, what was her name, Harriet? Uh, Harriet Cohen. I don't remember her exact title. Right, um, right. But she was calling every day, and uh, every day, no, every week <laughs> at least, uh, quite often. Yeah. And uh, she would be asking us, I mean, uh, what the city should do about no. the homeless. But, I mean, she was just trying to stay on top of it. I think they were trying to make decisions on whether it was a good thing or a bad thing to have yeah. the chief up there, I don't know. Um, right. Uh, you know, it, it was a time, and we'll get into that later, where really nobody was in charge. But the right. idea that the borough president's office was asking us what they should do, you know, first of all, uh, we're artists, and we're not doing, we're not social workers. We're not homelessness experts, and we didn't no, want to be. We didn't want to be put in that position, certainly. The other thing I want to mention, refer back to a little bit from the back cover, is Dances with Wolves, right? Right. Um, that opened on that weekend, which was the Thanksgiving Day weekend. Coincidentally, we didn't yes, know it was going to happen. We had no idea that Dances with Wolves. Uh, I mean, we might have known that it, it it was happening, but we certainly didn't know it was opening that weekend. Did yeah, we? it was sort of. Uh, the, Go ahead. It was fortuitous because that film is credited uh, in changing the perception that Hollywood had towards Native Americans, the way they portrayed the Lakota tribe sympathetically, the way they used all natives inside. Right, versus white actors playing natives. Right, right, right. It's often given as a kind of landmark film that uh, changed Hollywood. A different Hollywood of the cowboys and Indians that we grew up in and were watching on film and television. Right, which is a whole other subject matter in and of itself, putting up a teepee. And um, yeah. we, w- whether it could be done today, we'll, we'll save that for another time. But it's a little s- similar uh, to... Actually, what we were alluding to, though, also, which is if you put a teepee in a shantytown, it's much, first of all, it's, it's a war memorial making people think back about the country's history, but hopefully also making them think about people and the way they're living in this shantytown. In other words, if you put a teepee in a shantytown, it becomes a little more difficult to talk about those people as living like animals, and maybe it gets people thinking about the way they're romanticizing Native Americans versus actually dealing with their history, which the country doesn't do. Right, right. So it it just opposes the two um, aspects of... uh, Yes, and what we and that's what we were trying to do is get people to think. Right. Hopefully, to that's what even the photograph we thought would do if the teepee came down the next day. Um, is that a real photo, or was that photoshopped, or is that real? Did it actually happen? Right. So it was happening, and it did happen for two and a half years. Uh, why don't you read some more from the uh, book, and then we'll we'll dive right in. Yeah, as they right. say. <laughs> so. I begin the book with a quote, and it'll become obvious why, okay? 
The quote is, this circle and all that is within or above it is sovereign. The right to privacy and freedom of speech shall not be violated. Right. That is the quote that we made up, that we put on the door flap of the teepee to prevent people from just walking in. By we, people, you mean police. I yeah. mean, because at the time there was a big um, controversy about how the police could, how the police dealt with homeless. In other words, my thought was that, look, it's, it's a Fourth Amendment right. You draw a circle around yourself. You can't just come in there and start searching my body and my clothes and my belongings that are within that circle. Exactly. So, no, no matter where you are, right? You don't have to be in a home, however you define that, and that's a that, whole other topic. Yeah, but right? that door flap, which you put it, we put it on the door flap, went up after the police started coming up to the teepee and basically just opening the flap with their nightstick and looking in. Yeah. Now, th I don't know if this sign changed anything, but I'll tell you what, that the police w had a procedure that had been outlined to them at the precinct level by a sergeant or something that says this is the way to deal with it. So you could see a progression of how they dealt with us in the teepee. And at some point, it seemed like they became more um, respectful, is not the word, but they became more like okay, we don't go in there. Yes, because there were also a lot of lawsuits going on at the time. I actually called, and you know, this was within the first couple of weeks, by the way, when we figured this out. I actually called ACLU, Coalition for the Homeless, saying, do homeless people not have Fourth Amendment rights? Right, I mean, exactly. You know, yeah. Can they not just draw a circle around themselves and say inside this is sovereign or say a teepee or say... Uh, a wooden structure, and they basically said, mm, no, and I said, come on, that's not possible. But sure enough, there were, there were uh, various lawsuits going on, and being one ab about exactly that, that right. uh, you do not have to pay rent or mortgage inside a structure in order to uh, have rights. Um, so I started with that quote. And then on November 22nd, 1990, Thanksgiving at 8.30 p.m. after watching The Simpsons, we could stall no longer. <laughs> okay, I have to stop again already um, because I very deliberately left that in. I had written that in the journal, but I left it in because the irony didn't escape me. You know, The, the Simpsons is sort of the quintessential white American bumbling family, middle-class family. <laughs> yeah, which we were too. I mean, at the time we both had day jobs. So we had an apartment in Brooklyn. And um, even though we then started living at the Hill, essentially, we always kept the apartment back in Brooklyn. Right. I imagine there was more than one time we went home and watched The Simpsons. Yes, yes. Which is I, know, I know sometimes we deliberately uh, went home to have uh, a meal. Yeah. Yes, and I want to add something, another thing here, which is that the word homelessness is, home. the homeless, I mean, is incredibly misleading. It's a catch-all phrase that really isn't what is conjured up in most people's minds. For instance, most of the people on the Hill were not homeless in that 
ethereal sense that most people think of it as. In other words, they had societal affiliations like we did as well. They had mothers, uh, wives, ex-wives, you know, people that they went back to right. and came back and forth to the hill like we did as well. Right. Uh, sure, there were people, well... No, no, there were individuals who were would be... I guess, avatars of the homeless, in a way. In other words, they had no affiliation. They were either ascetic, living by themselves, wanting to live by themselves, or without any means to get any other place to live. Right, but in general, the population on the hill was not terribly different from the population of, say, any residential building. Right. In the area. In the area. Right. In Chinatown. You had all kinds of people represented, you know, including, yes, drug addicts, uh, including, yes, people that were actually homeless and had no place to go um, because people also didn't want to go to shelters, for example, just as today they don't want to go to shelters. The shelters are dangerous. They would have preferred to live in tents or out on the street or in shantytown or in a community which is what the hill was when we got there right right? um all right i I better keep reading (laughs) so after the simpsons we took a brief breath took a deep breath um and after a, a goofy smile to each other we took all our anxiety our tools and our instructions and drove to the hill and as quickly as possible, put up our teepee, lest someone, read cops, try to stop us. The poles were already there from a previous attempt several weeks earlier, midnight on All Souls Day. That night... Yeah, I picked that night because <laughs> <laughs> we were ready to put up the teepee, and now here's a date that seemed metaphysical to me. You know, yeah. Halloween night, All Souls Night. The next day is All Saints Day, and I thought of this uh, up and down, living and dying kind of thing that was going to, because we thought it was going to come down. Yeah, we were convinced it was going to come down. The so next that's day. why we, we yeah. ch- chose all And in Halloween. general, um, Nick's metaphysics drove a lot of all of our work. Well, it drove you crazy more, more than drove our work. <laughs> yeah, it drove our work. Yeah. We, we, I zip my lip, okay. no comment. <laughs> right, right. No. No, it didn't drive no, me no, crazy. No, I know, but I mean, we're different that way in a way. Yeah, right? you're the conceptualist and I'm the executor, as we uh, like yeah, to say. Yeah, I right? say it's the tarot deck, build a teepee out of a tarot deck, you and do And I it. make the teepee. <laughs> right. And I interpret the tarot deck. Yes, you meditate on it. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Um, That night um, on All Souls Day, no one knew that Nick, our friend Tom, and I were coming. And although Nick had been hanging out for weeks trying to gain the residents' trust and explaining that he wanted to erect a teepee among their huts, they quickly realized they were not prepared for the seriousness and scale of his intentions. The sight of 20, 25-foot-long trees was shocking to a group of people who mostly try to lie low in life. It certainly required digesting, and the more vocal among them told us it wasn't going to happen that night. Fine. At least we got all the poles there and unloaded in one piece on the roof of our van without being stopped and questioned as to what on earth we were up to. And I want to stop here again because 
I wrote the roof of our van because, you know, you have to realize when, especially the beginning of the journal, um, this is not an exact transcription. I, when I knew it would be published, knew that I had to fill in the details. A journal, when one writes a journal, one isn't really worried about an audience and I can't expect mm. readers to get into my head. So I laid the picture and I wrote that we transported those trees on the roof of our van because that's just what I assumed, you know? We had a, a I don't know, how long was that van? 12-foot bed. Yeah, it, was, it had a 12-foot van. It was a man with van, 12-foot van. Okay, but unfortunately, after publication, <laughs> I went through a bunch more stuff and found pictures. Do you know right. that we transported those trees in the bed of the van? So you got to figure the bed was 12 feet long. The trees were 25 feet. <laughs> right, right. So they stuck out another so 12 feet or 13 feet. They stuck out feet, another, right. yeah, 12 feet. And we slapped a bunch of, a bunch of flags on them. And then right, I remember. headed it was, from yeah. the Catskills down the road into Manhattan for three hours. <laughs> yeah, we, we had to take the back roads, one and nine or whatever goes down. Did not, we? not 87, which is the highway. Oh, Didn't okay. want to go. I think we had to get on 87 right at the end. Oh, absolutely. Of course, you know, yeah. we had to cross all the bridges down there to right. get into Manhattan. Right? right, right. So that that was quite a feat in the sense that uh, we were very nervous about it. But nothing really happened. It just w it went pretty smooth. Right, right, right. You know, I, w I might as well talk a little bit about the uh, the poles, too, of how we got them, right? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Up at uh, Portia and Jarrett's. They, they had, uh, friends of ours, they have a um, an estate that has uh, mostly oak trees on it. Yeah, they have about 50-some acres of land up there. Right. But within the oak trees are these pine groves, and that's what we needed. We needed pine because pine grows straight up. But what we found was about five or six pine groves within this uh, acreage, and uh, within those groves we found individual trees that had shot up, but because of the thickness of the grove didn't find the light at the end. So they'd grow up and die standing up. Which means that they were lightweight. Right. Um, and not broken because they were still standing upright, right? But um, if you cut down a tree that is live, you have to let it dry out for many, many months because otherwise it's just too heavy. You know, right, too heavy it's too to heavy. To, no, too heavy to, to use. To use. You can't put it up on a, as a teepee. Exactly. So the Native Americans would have dried them out. Right. So we, we were very lucky to find that, that dense grove and then uh, to, you know, weave those uh, 25 approximately big trees through the forest to the side of the road, load them in the back of the van and bring them to Manhattan. Um, continue. So this time tonight, Thanksgiving, I mean, we had a date. So now with the rope to tie together, and lift the poles, the wooden stakes to hold the cover together, and the hammer to pound the anchor stakes into the ground, we had everything we needed. Even the city inadvertently helped us out. Just a few days earlier, sanitation came and cleaned up piles of garbage, thereby making room for that gigantic conical structure. It was meant to be. Yeah, right. I mean, I think it was not only meant to be, that's what spurred us into action that night. It wasn't that it was Thanksgiving Day. It was that the day before, maybe because it was Thanksgiving, san sanitation came in, 
and clean the whole yard. Oh, out. really? You think? I, you know, I was. I guess it's a chicken egg thing. I always, no. I always thought of it more romantically that we we went there expecting to have to clean up piles and piles and piles of garbage, which, by the way, was a daunting task because this was the height of the AIDS crisis and needles were everywhere. Right. Right. I right. thought we would have to clean that out and then put up the teepee. No, huh? It makes more no, sense. No, no. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they cleaned it out the day before. And then we said, let's put up our teepee, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, where were we going to clean it? We'd have to carry it outside the yard and throw it on the street. Yeah, we wouldn't have right. dumpsters you're or anything. Right. Yeah, right. but you know how the memory likes to... But it, it's interesting <laughs> that it happened on Thanksgiving Day, It too. is. Meant I mean, to be, right? Thanksgiving, which has its own uh, relationship to lore or whatever to Native Americans yes, and whites yes. coming to them. Yeah, I mean, there a, lo every, a lot of things felt really... Um, there's a word for meant to be that I can't think of. Metaphysical. <laughs> Metaphysical. That's what there I you go. There you go, Nick. All right. <laughs> the canvas was a perfect fit, which amazed and delighted the hell out of me. This was the first time I was able to see the teepee erected. And that wasn't entirely true either. We saw it erected upstate, but only with about four or five poles. You know, not, not with all 17 poles actually in place. The warehouse where I built it wasn't high enough. Since teepees aren't round but oval, achieving a tight, wrinkle-free fit of the cover over the poles is a challenge. The larger the teepee, the bigger the challenge. This one is about 19 feet in diameter on average. Well, repetition, 20 of them, 17 plus threes to spare. Average about 25 feet in length and are tied together at about 19 feet high. Add to that the fact that the canvas is a jigsaw puzzle of... 78 U.S. government number three mailbags opened at the seams into flat rectangles, and a pocketless, sagless fit becomes an even more brilliant piece of craftsmanship. Uh, yes, I made it. <laughs> I actually yeah. wrote all that. <laughs> I see. You wrote it in there. Yes, you made it. Well, you did make it. It was quite an accomplishment. I mean, yeah. yeah. The mailbags were interesting, too, because... Where do you get the mailbags? Well, you get them at the post office. Yes, and everybody thought we were being incredibly snotty when we said that. And by everybody, again, I mean cops. Where'd you get the mailbags? The post office. You right. know. But it's the truth. If you have a bulk mailing, you go to the post office and say, can I have a bunch of mailbags to bring back all of my mail in? And they give them to you, and that's it. You know? Yeah, the bags, when you're opening them up, they're about two foot by four foot. But otherwise, they're just uh, a bag. We used them for other things, too, up on the hill. Yeah, but there yeah. are, at that time, the homeless also used uh, those mail carts that the police Mail carts, yes. The, ma the post office in general came in very handy for a lot right, of things right. during that era. Right. Um, and the other thing about canvas, again, Nick's metaphysics driving all this, right? 78. Why 78 mailbags? Well, 78 is the size of a tarot deck. But also canvas because we were hearkening back to the days when Native Americans were being uh, removed from their land and put on reservations. Right. And the buffalo had all been killed. And the, the, the government, the U.S. government, gave Native Americans canvas to build their teepees with. And so we were uh, hearkening back to all of that as well with our number three U.S. mailbags, right? Were there a number three or number two? Three. Okay, you know. I you know. Do. You Believe handle me, them. And right. we have pictures to prove it. 
Yeah, so the government was still supplying canvas for the teepee yeah. as they were, were, did 100 years ago. Right, so yeah. that was that was part of the, the concept. You know, right. this is obviously a very conceptual piece of art, uh, uh, you know, along with being practical. But that also reminds me of Jared. <laughs> Jared. <laughs> because oh. at the time, right. I was drawing this tarot deck in the warehouse that was Nick's day job also. Right. Um, and I was there drawing my 78, you know, one after another tarot deck on the mailbag. You were illustrating the tarot deck. Illustrating the tarot Through your deck, head. Through my head, my interpretation. Of the and three of hearts or the exactly, three of diamonds or the exactly. jack of... Yeah. And um, I was moseying along with that, thinking that when I'm all done, I will sew them all together and put up the teepee until our friend Valerie said, you guys, you are, <laughs> you're just procrastinating. Sew mailbags together, put up the teepee, and then you can be inside the teepee illustrating your tarot right. deck. But you're, this is just your way of stalling. And we knew that she was exactly right. But we also had Jared saying, you guys, yeah. you don't really need to actually put up the teepee. If you just say that that's what the concept is, that's already an art project. That you can talk about. And, <laughs> yeah, right. Right, so. <laughs> so we thought, oh, great, we yeah. don't actually have to do it. We were trying all kinds of ways to actually get out of it because yeah. we were scared, obviously, right. you know. We'll talk later, too, about the peers that supported us in doing this and how that support, when we talk now about, like, if you could put up a teepee today. Uh, no, I don't. But we'll talk about how the culture was different then and it is now i mean 32 years ago so yeah, we're exactly. talking about uh, but let's put that off for okay, now okay but for i think I, I i do want to say the broad stroke of that is that back then and now people thought of it as a war memorial well that's how we put it out as a war memorial even yes. though it was going up in a shanty town it was to honor the uh, centenary of, of the, the Wounded Knee Massacre. Right. Exactly. And we were contacting Native Americans in the city, asking them to participate. Yes. Oh, the, my God. Okay. Uh, that's okay. that's story, part story, of it. Story, 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 story. All right. So everyone on the Hill was duly impressed. Some wanted to help and were even more awed by the fact that it actually only took two people, about 30 minutes, 15 if you're experienced, to put the thing cursorily into place. I explained that the Plains Indians were nomads and needed to be able to pick up and leave at a moment's notice, which is why the design was so cleverly simple. During World War II, even the Air Force taught its pilots how to convert their parachutes into teepees to survive the cold. And I got that from the book that I, I used as a template to make the teepee with. And it's called the Indian Teepee, and it's by Gladys and Reginald Laubin. Mm. And it's from that book that I got that information about you know, World War II and the Air Force. Ace is so far the resident who's most talkative and accessible to me. Everyone else I know only through Nick. Um, oh, yeah, let's, uh, let's talk about, we're gonna be talking about the residents, but maybe you right. can stop there because uh, We'll be going into uh, the people we lived with later on. Exactly. So let's, at this point, talk about New York City. Let's give an overview of what the city was like and what 
the environment was that we were putting this teepee into. So at that time, uh, shanty living was becoming a phenomenon that was creeping up on New Yorkers. Okay? There were 10 cities everywhere. And the one that got the most play and was the biggest flashpoint was Tompkins Square Park in the East Village, which had mostly tents, but it got a lot of attention. Yeah, that's where all the media went to for from the years prior to we put up the teepee up into the time that we were living there. Exactly. And there was a riot in 1988. Right. And, and then in 89, it was cleared again. And then it was shut down for good, the entire park, for over a year, about seven months after we got there right. in, in the summer of 1991. And because it was called Tent City, because it was full of tents, now there's a teepee <laughs> and they, in a shantytown, not with other tents, but in an actual shantytown. Exactly. So it, 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 it became very complicated to a city that was completely overwhelmed and didn't know how to deal with any well, of Well, I was it, just, right? I'm just thinking right now, it's easier to tear down a tent than it is to tear down a teepee. Yeah. I mean, especially a war memorial. Especially uh, when you don't know who put up that teepee. Right. And stayed, we stayed quiet as to uh, who we were. Yeah, we were anonymous for them. Yeah. Yeah. We were deliberately anonymous for a lot of reasons. Right. All right, but then, okay, uh, there was also an encampment in the long abandoned railroad tunnel in Riverside Park. There oh. was a, a, a tunnel underneath that park, and right. the people there were called mostly by the tabloids the mole people. Right, and th that's, that's the ones that Margaret documented. A uh, very courageous uh, photographer, Margaret Morton, went down there and uh, by herself with her camera and moved around the tunnels, found the people living yes. down there, and photographed them and their dwellings. Right, and, and her book is called The Tunnel, the, the, the one about the people living in the park, but she also wrote a bunch of other books, books of photographs, including Fragile Dwelling, Margaret Morton, uh, you should look her up, became a dear, dear friend of ours who saw the tragedies and the highlights through thick and thin with us throughout through the hill. Of course, we met her because she came to the hill wanting to photograph the teepee and the, you know, the shanties there as part of her work. But uh, she became a wonderful friend and she yes. has sadly since passed away. Yeah. Then there was the steel trussle supporting the West Side Highway at 58th Street that warped when residents built a fire underneath it and the highway buckled up on top, so of course they tore that down. Uh, there was the, encamp the encampment at 72nd Street and the highway, and that was so corroded that it also had to be torn down. Bryant Park was all tense. Um, the worry was that everybody was getting used to this state of affairs and just living with it, you know, saying, well, it, this is New York. Deal with it. That's the way, that's just the way it is, right? Well, yeah, the same way it was back in the Depression, right? Yes, that's right. Uh, in the 30s, during the Depression, there were giant encampments, much larger still, that were referred to as 
Hoovervilles, okay? And after Herbert Hoover, the president at the time. Right. And that was something else. Uh, those were mostly gone by 33, I think it was, or the mid-30s, a few, few years later, right? But the hill itself was already up for five years before we ever got there, right. that, that we knew. And nobody was calling any of these encampments Bushville, you know, after the president at the time, or some other nickname that uh, Well, they weren't, I don't think they were all over the country these shanty towns i i would say they were very particular to new york okay City. but they still called them hoovervilles in the 30s even though they were you know and yeah i don't were they specific to new york or were they okay I, well that's that's yeah yeah let's investigate that but i i'm not sure right right but there was nothing you know suggesting i mean new, new york city was known on, as on this, as know? as a kind of it was given was it there wasn't another city that had the notoriety that New York City had. Today, Los Angeles has that. Yes, exactly. Less so uh, New York City. LA is the flashpoint now, right? Right, right. In terms of uh, homelessness, metaphorically, right? Right. People think of LA, not New York today. Um, So you had all of these tent cities, but now you also had the hill, which weren't tents, but wooden structures. And they would today be called tiny houses, well, actually, they're tiny homes, which was what Margaret got was trying to get to when she said fragile dwelling. The idea that it's a home, but it's very fragile, and it's in the middle of something that could take it away at any time, exactly. which is authority. Now, you can get into, you know, it's, it's obviously a huge discussion, but the point is what you call a home is you should be allowed to define what what you call a home. And in fact, um, Joe DePlasco, who was the spokesperson for the Department of Transportation, uh, he was very hands-off on the Hill. He said that as long as they pose no threat to the structure... um, Of the Manhattan Bridge. Right. It's not for him to do anything about it. Exactly. All right. But in any case, you know, the Hill represented permanence, Right. And and because it, it, it can't be constantly cleared and rebuilt because there are wooden structures. Right. So at the, and then Dinkins. Right. Uh, it, it was approximately at the end of his first year in office. And Dinkins ran on a platform of dealing with a homeless problem. Koch. I don't want to say he didn't care, but he certainly did not forefront it. You know, no, the uh, city was broken. He put fake out. windows in burned out buildings in the Bronx to yeah. make them look better. <laughs> right. That's what I recall about cosmetic, how, yeah. cosmetic, how, how Koch dealt with. Right. You know, um, but this, the city was broke. You know, uh, the, the the country was not in a depression, but in a recession. The city itself was broke, and the, uh, Dinkins could count on neither federal nor state money, and so his heart was in the right place, but there wasn't a whole lot of options open to him, right? Also, no mo- nobody knew exactly how many people were living in the streets and in the subways back then. Um, advocates estimated that 
It ran into the tens of thousands of single adults, hundreds of families, primarily young single mothers and their kids, that were in welfare hotels and huge makeshift overnight accommodations, and they did not have enough shelters. They didn't even, mostly, it, it, they were all, yeah, makeshift. They didn't even know where to put all these people. And for context, the Coalition for the Homeless says that right now there are roughly 65,000 individuals in shelters today, right? right? And in 19 it was about 20,000. And what that tells you is that the rest of the people were on the street. You know, Uh, today there is, you know, it's still a huge problem. Everybody knows this is not just LA, New York as well, but the homeless aren't as visible because there are more shelters today than there were back then. And again, how, how do you, quote, solve this problem? Well, for one, you got to distinguish and not use homeless as a catch-all phrase that refers to a huge range of social problems in, in uh, poverty, for one thing, you know, trying to figure out how to eradicate poverty. Uh, yes, drug abuse, mental illness, uh, family problems, um, housing shortage. So the homeless is not it, it it's it's okay so that i mean that's the big picture, picture. and uh that was the zeitgeist of new york city at the time right um, and the, okay zeitgeist right that reminds me because we called our work not just paratheatrical or conceptual we called it both site specific and zeitgeist specific meaning mm-hmm. we whatever city or place we were in we were looking at what the zeitgeist was and trying to figure out how to address it creatively right right and i mean so l- let's talk about what actually motivated us at that time i mean we had come off another theater project that we had done and we were looking at the homeless problem the zeitgeist and uh, I was driving my day job was man with van I had a business where I drive a van along with a warehouse where uh, right I had a warehouse where you ran a film and television backdrop rental place uh, that was headquartered in LA right yeah but you also did man with van which means we had to have commercial plates which means we couldn't use the Brooklyn Bridge which means we drove you know our uh, back and forth especially Nick with his jobs but personally as well over the Manhattan Bridge constantly to get right. into Manhattan and right? then one day we were going over it um, you were in the van with me and uh, we saw what we thought was somebody who had been hit on the side of the road there was a person lying on the side of the road on the bridge and we, of course, just drove on because we're in traffic. Right. You're flying across the bridge, you know, and there's no way to really stop. But in your mind, you're going, <gasps> what? Oh, my God. What and you're, that? You're, you're not getting off the bridge until you no. pass the shanty And town. you're not calling 911 on your cell phone, you know? There no. were no cell phones back then. Right, right. So you go off the bridge. The shanty town was there every time when we went by. Right. And that's where you get off the bridge. Right. And I don't know if we did it then or later, but at some point I walked up and looked at... Up the bridge to where we right. saw what we saw. And then we saw what it was, which was... Um, some kind of guerrilla art. Somebody had stuffed uh, pants and shirt and coat and hat and everything with uh, with cans. cans. And so uh, it was meant to look like somebody. 
look like a person. Right. And, and years later, our friend Andrea Sturzing, who uh, was also a photographer and... Uh, well, a photographer of the East Village and the Lower East Side and yes, everything. Yes, yes. So uh, he saw a lot of the uh, grill art that was going up. Yes, the and he's had museum exhibits and everything. Right, right. And um, gratefully, uh, he allowed me to put his photos on the cover of my book, right. the back cover. But he thought um, n- not all that long ago that uh, the artist was probably David from uh, Finn. Sorry, David Finn. Um, yeah, but we, we were know. never able to confirm that. No, no, right. Um, well, what else was more? I mean, at the time, we were, once we actually were going to do it, we, we had books that were guiding us. It was uh, The Box Man by Kobe Kobo Kobo Abe. Abe. Yes, uh, The Box Man was something that we had always wanted to do. And then there, w- and there was uh, Heiner Miller, Mueller's piece, uh, Landscape with Argonauts and uh, Medea material. Yeah, it's called but Despoiled Shore, Medea material, Landscape with Argonauts. Uh, uh, and we actually did that play. Later on, we did the play within the teepee. Inside the teepee. But, but um, that guided us, yes. But the real one was, of course, Janae again and Prisoner of Love which was his memoir of the time he, towards the, I think it was his last work. It was his last work. It was posthumously published, in right. fact, yeah. Right, yeah. and not in the United States. Yes, we had to get initially. Prisoner of Love was uh, his work about, uh, depicting the time that Genet, late in his life, Genet became a political activist. And he spent time with both the uh, Black Panthers um, in the United States and with the, uh, the PLO, PLO yeah. the refugees um, and uh, in the refugee camp. And um, it, it, so Prisoner of Love is about the time that he spent with t- those two groups. In fact, uh, we did a reading of that book as well at Henry well, Street Well, no, that's another whole story. Yes, we did. Well, you did something else, the, the whole uh, camcorder project with the book. I mean, there's a lot okay, about... Okay, okay. Too yeah. much? Too no, much. no, it's not too much. It's, it's, it For was now. inspiring. Yeah. It was inspiring. I mean, Janae is basically why we named it Thieves Theater. Our biggest inspiration. Right. Yes. We started the the uh, theater by doing a production in Illinois State Penitentiary. Uh, that's how we began the theater. Right. We went into the penitentiary with one of his plays, Death Watch. Which takes place in a penitentiary. And we did that play with prisoners at Stateville, which is a maximum security prison in Joliet, Illinois. Right. And we, we brought our workshops in. And there was a group there, uh, a theater group inside the prison called... Um, uh, the con artists? The con, con artists. Con artists. <laughs> they named <right>. themselves. <laughs> right. And um, they, you know, they had exercises we had never seen, which is, and we used later on, which is like doing like 25 forward rolls. And um, and then what happens to your your physicality, and your, your consciousness brain, and when everything. you make yourself dizzy like that. Yeah, yeah. You know. And, uh, you know, they we had exercise we brought to them. I remember one that was really threatening to them, which was that trust exercise. Oh, yes, theater all, 101. Yeah, <laughs> where you uh, fall backwards and your uh, your ensemble catches you. Your ensemble. But you have to trust that they're going to catch you. Right. right. They didn't like that one. No, no. they wouldn't do that. One, but so. listen, we're getting, we're getting too far afield. We'll get into all of that down the line. Yeah. But that gives you guys a really... Uh, good overview of what this podcast is going to be about and what our work is about. I want to say one thing and I'll leave you with this final quote because Nick gave an interview at the time of The Hill. I want to bring it back to The Hill also. Um, 
that uh, I recently listened to again, Nick, you gave an interview to a student back then. And it's very difficult to encapsulate this work. And I'm listening to this interview and I'm going, holy shit, he just did it. He encapsulated it, oh. right? And so I wrote it down and this will be the, the final thought for this episode. He was asked why live in a shantytown and why live in a, te in a teepee in a shantytown. And Nick said, they both represent losses people trampled as the nation seemingly progresses. And they both represent hope, people living in the face of forces bent on making them disappear. Yeah, right. <laughs> my no, no. My brilliant conceptual no. partner. Okay. Anyway, thanks again. Uh, you're listening to The Hill by Thieves Theater. Again, you can go to thievestheater.org. That's theater with an R-E.org to get lots more information. And um, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.